Hello, this is Jason Gale. Welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, the CSA podcast. Today we're here again with Dr. Benjamin Smith, lecturer in philosophy and co-founder. And today we want to do two things. You might have noticed something a little different. We have a title, so we want to get into that and kind of go through why did we choose this name for our podcast. And we also want to talk a little bit about how this motto really has a lot to do with our mission here at CSA. And also to kind of give you some examples of what this scripture passage brings to us and should call to mind to us as Christians. So we are here, like I said, with Dr. Benjamin Smith. Well, thank you, Jason. Uh, This is actually uh, one of my um, favorite verses, uh, a verse I I come back to uh, over and over again. Uh, for a variety of reasons, but I think it, it really works well for us because although we never want to be hostile or arrogant, uh, we need to remember that as Christians, we are actually at war. Um, one of the things that sometimes I think uh, believers sort of struggle with, especially in our own time, is is recognizing that fact. Um, there's a lot of pressure for Christians to be very sort of passive and quiet and that sort of thing. And again, we always want to you know, be humble and we do want to avoid hostility or arrogance. But the scriptures tell us over and over again that we are, in fact, at war. Uh, Saint, the writings of St. Paul are full of uh, military metaphors. The writings of the great saints and doctors are full of military metaphors. Um, and, and that points to the fact that we are um, involved in a, a kind of spiritual warfare. Um, it's a kind of warfare that's serious and the stakes are uh, very high. And this passage talks about destroying arguments, every proud obstacle to the knowledge of God, uh, and that we need to take every thought captive. So I'm just going to read it here. This is Second uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. We destroy arguments and every proud obstacle to the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's the passage that, that this uh, statement comes from, and it, it points to the fact that we are involved in a kind of combat, a kind of conflict, um, where we need to destroy certain arguments, and we need to capture certain thoughts and ideas um, and make them obedient uh, to Christ in order that people may come to know God, right? So it's not just a matter of being contentious, but as the, the passage says there, as St. Paul clearly says, uh, every obstacle to the knowledge of God, right? So our, our point here is helping people to increase in their intellectual formation so that they'll come to know and think about God in ways that are, are uh, clearer, uh, in ways that are more true and more accurate. Yeah, and I think it's a huge thing when it comes to, you know, even for, you know, those that, I don't want to say are anti-intellectual, but even those that are maybe soft <laughs> Soft on the, the, the intellectual side of the faith, which, which you know, I, I understand sometimes. But even for those people, like in order to love something rightly, mm-hmm. we have to know it and know it in its uh, in its reality. You know, and I love that, you know, that this passage points to those two aspects, uh, to the knowledge of God and, again, the way it ends, to obey God. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this this idea of, of and it's actually you know uh, an authentic humility to submit mm-hmm. your intellect to the knowledge of God in obedience, right? Uh, sure. uh, and I think that's something that you know, uh, and it even says in there that every proud obstacle, uh-huh. you know. Sure. So I mean, there's a there, there's a whole 
kind of underlining theme, I think, here of humility, which uh, sure. uh, as you, you know, as you present in your philosophy classes, you know, that's a, that's that has to be a hallmark of the philosopher, this right. idea of humility. Sure. Yeah. And, and I mean, if you think about it, I mean, there's an enormous amount of intellectual pride in our world today um, and, and really just sort of arrogance uh, and refusal uh, to take um, classical ideas or uh, Christian truth uh, seriously um, and just sort of a dismissal of it. You know, like, oh, well, we have science today and we don't really need to think about all that, even though most people have never really read any science or any books about <laughs> science or any philosophy of science or probably haven't done that many uh, scientific experiments. But nevertheless, right, for some reason uh, that it, because there's science, we can just dismiss uh, uh, Christianity. Uh, and that is a uh, sort of uh, it's a proud obstacle for a lot of people. Um, you know, that there is just this kind of almost ethos that being sophisticated means, uh, you know, not believing in God, uh, yeah. which, of course, uh, is is in fact um, is, is, is in fact the opposite. And I think one of the things we, we recognize is that a lot of, you know, unfortunately, uh, as we've talked about for a variety of reasons there, um, whether we're talking about sort of credentialed experts or uh, religious leaders, there's a real um, tendency to neglect intellectual formation. There's yeah. a tendency to almost, as you said, you kind of almost be anti-intellectual um, to kind of castigate the uh, thinking as if it was somehow, I don't know, like not spiritual or or not kind or not loving. Um, but frankly, that's not a biblical attitude. Uh, no. The Bible tells us very clearly here, right, that um, we need to think about arguments. We need to think about knowing God. We need to take thoughts captive. Those are all about our cognitive lives. And so that from a, a biblical perspective, right, our thoughts, our minds, right, the ideas that we have are very important in our spiritual combat. Yeah, and even St. Paul, you know, in Romans, he talks about how transformation takes place by the renewal of your mind. Absolutely. And it's... And I think that, you know, um, even, you know, within the catechetical world, one thing I always like to tell people, which is it, it's, you know, when you accept this frustrating truth, your life is so much easier uh, <laughs> as a catechist, at least where, you know, like the, this idea that, you know, we need to constantly be renewing our minds mm -hmm. that even mm -hmm. if, you know, say, you know, as a, as a catechist or a teacher of the faith or something like that, even when you know, our students grasp what we say, accept it, and you can actually see some sort of movement, some sort of conversion taking place. Next week, their mind is going to have to be renewed again. Next month, sure. next year, <laughs> like this, this we have to constantly be renewing our minds. Whereas, you know, I think sometimes, you know, it's it's fatiguing because it sure. is work to do this thing, and so sometimes people say, "Well, oh, we'll, maybe we'll, you know, we just need to to love more." Mm -hmm. uh, as a po you know and they put it in not 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 that it really is but they put it in kind sure. of this opposition to sure. intellectual formation and like you said it's not a biblical you know it's not a biblical attitude at all you know I mean, no. Moses you know Moses you know uh chastised the Israelites for not teaching their children right you know and right. and so i mean it's it's one of those things that 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 is something that we just have to Everybody needs, needs to take a deep breath and say, yes, this is something that our world needs today. We need this intellectual formation. We need yeah. to kind of, you know, and as Catholics, we need to step up our intellectual game a little, you know. Sure. Um, yeah, ideas uh, matter. The, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and really, uh, uh, Jason, that's a good point about the need to return to this over and over again. 
um, because there is an opposite voice out there, right? Yeah. It's not as if we're in a neutral space. And too often, I think Christians imagine as if they're in a neutral space, but we're not, right? Um, in that same passage you referred to about being transformed by the renewal of our minds, uh, it also says, do not be conformed to this world, right? Yeah. And so there is constantly, you know, if you look at the tradition of the church, you don't think about the world, the flesh, and the devil. Um, these three things are constantly pushing against us, pushing on our minds and on our hearts uh, to adopt ideas and attitudes, feelings that are opposed, right, to the knowledge of God, to knowing God and to being obedient to Christ. Uh, our world is full of these ideas, right? I mean, they're constantly pitched to us. They're marketed to us. <laughs> they're used oh, to yeah. market other uh, objects and, and, and products to us. And so we really need to be uh, – uh, fully equipped, we need to be uh, constantly renewing our minds, uh, to go to your point there. Yeah, and I think it's also one of those things where, uh, you know, you, you may hear somebody have the, well, you know, I'm going to leave that decision to my child. Uh, you know, kind of kind of as if your child exists. <laughs> but also, you know, as if your child exists kind of in this in this vacuum of of, of pure pressure where there's no where there's nothing really influencing them and they're just going to make this pure objective uh, sure. decision about religion, about whatever like that. Like, no, that, that, that situation does not exist. Right. Your child is going to be influenced by all of the voices screaming at them. That's right. You know? yeah. And so, yeah. so it's one of those things where, no, we need to, we need to teach our children. We need to form them. Well, yeah, we need to do all of these things. It's really interesting because it's so clear in scripture about how, uh, I mean, the, just the more I think about it, the words about, um, you know, be vigilant, be awake, guard your heart. I mean, over and over again, right? The scriptures are really imploring us to take this kind of proactive attitude towards our own formation, towards our own attitudes, uh, and toward, and, and really, um, with respect to, to how we engage with the world, that there is this opposition against us that's trying to destroy us. And I don't mean that in a political way or necessarily a sociological or tribal way, but what I mean that uh, is trying to destroy our lives, trying to destroy, um, trying to destroy not only our lives, but you know, really, as I said, the stakes are high, um, yeah. and so um, we need to to have the attitude of being engaged um, and and really being engaged in combat um, and. You know, to bring all this together, what we're trying to do with you know, adopting this name and then in this podcast and the other resources provided by CSA is uh, we're trying to contribute to um, the equipping of the mind, right? The renewal of the mind, yeah. um, the intellectual side of this, because one of the primary ways in which we engage in the spiritual warfare is through the ideas in our minds, right? Um uh, you know, that's, that's, that's so important. I believe, uh, I can't remember right now his full name, but I think his last name is Weaver, but it was a, um, a title of an important book, uh, called Ideas Have Consequences. And <laughs> I just want to say, yep, that's correct, right? And, and that is actually a biblical perspective, right? Uh, from a biblical perspective, the way that we think affects the way that we live and, um, and will ultimately affect our, uh, eternal destiny. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look at the French Revolution. Ideas have consequences. Right. right. <laughs> really clear example. Right, right, right. The guillotine first began as an idea, you know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, and I, and I also like the, the, just the, the idea of uh, taking it captive, you know, mm -hmm. that, it's, that, it's, uh, that it's something that, that we as, a, uh, 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 as Catholics, you know, we're, we're, we're not – we're not just driven by our emotions. We're not just sure. driven by these uh, 
um, or, or even by these attitudes, but we're, you know, we look at principles mm-hmm. and we say, we're sure. going to, you know, these, these principles are going to be our driving force. These, right. Right. Uh, and these principles destroy uh, uh, pride. You know, and for for us, you know, one of the one an example of this, you know, is a series that we're we're currently rolling out uh, about uh, modern politics, you know, uh, where we talk about ideas having consequences. That's right. This is like the the most easy one to kind of point to, you know, Uh, 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 you know, and say, you know, so, you know, why are these political ideas, you know, for for us to 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 think about? Why is it so important for us, especially today to, to to look at? Uh, that's a great question, Jason. And actually, it points to, I think, some really important uh, matters in um, political philosophy, but even more deeply in philosophical anthropology. Uh, one of the things that, um, you know, classical philosophers recognized very clearly um, and, and is that man is a political animal, right? That is, we are by nature political. We are by nature social. And so uh, a huge part of being a human being, this should be obvious to say, right, is relating to others, being in community with others, being in groups with others. Uh, This can be easily verified just, you know, from an anthropological or historical perspective that whenever possible, human beings begin to come together to form groups, to form communities, to form societies. And as much as we may uh, dislike, you know, politics, yeah. Uh, uh, nevertheless, it's, it's very clear that we are inclined to forming political communities. And so our ideas about politics are really also ideas about who we are as human beings and affect, uh, a great deal about our lives. When you think about the, you know, think about how different your life would be if you lived in the Soviet Union, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's a big deal, right? The, the ideas that inspired the Soviet Union were ideas about politics, ideas about the nature of man. Uh, and they had profound and uh, grievous um, yeah. uh, effects uh, it, during the history of the 20th century. Yeah, and especially for you know, and I and I like that I you know that's something that I think people need to to, to grasp. You know, is that you know politics? It's it's an, an extension or an expression of something that is that is in us as humans. We were made for community. Sure. We were made, right. you know, and we see this, you know, even in. You know, everything we do in the church is for mm-hmm. the sake of communion, you know, whether it be Holy Communion, the church's communion, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the communion of man and woman. Like there, there it's it's Good really it, it goes back to our human nature. Now, our human nature is inextricably fallen now. So uh, <laughs> that brings in so we can write really cool articles about fallen human nature and politics, which is what we, <laughs> which is what we looked at here. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, um, at least from, from the perspective of kind of what are we what are we doing in this uh, series uh, mm-hmm. regarding uh, politics? What are, what are we going to look at? Sure. So in this series of articles, um, uh, the title of the series uh, is Political Wisdom in Modern Politics. And my goal in writing this series uh, was to um, really empower students and and readers to just have a better uh, context for thinking about politics. So I'm not really advocating any particular political ideology in this series um, for our contemporary setting. Really, I'm just trying to equip readers with the knowledge they need to think uh, logically and in an informed way about 
political changes. So I think a lot of times we go around, you know, sort of with this sort of political rhetoric, political language that we're using, but we don't really know or haven't thought carefully about what the terms actually mean uh, or about, you know, how the ideas relate to each other um, or even clear definitions of the ideas. So that's my main goal in this. And one way of approaching this kind of um, task, right, is to focus on the historical background and development of these uh, of ideas. I always find uh, it's not the only way to approach, uh, you know, an intellectual task or a conceptual analysis, but it's a useful way. Uh, that is to uh, look at where did the ideas come from, how did they develop, when did they develop, that sort of thing. So I'm really tracing um, the history of modern political ideas in this series of articles uh, in order to uh, really, as I say, equip readers to think wisely um, and carefully about uh, politics. Yeah, so where do we get, so, I mean, the traditional term, or the terms we use now, which sadly also find their way into church speak, you know, mm-hmm. is just the, it's liberal versus conservative. Right, uh, right. Uh, So where, you know, where do we get kind of this idea of, of liberalism? And has maybe the, <laughs> the understanding maybe changed a little of sure, what sure. real liberalism is? Yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, that's, that's a, such an important point. And actually, a, a lot of these articles just grow out of my own interest in research and trying to understand these matters. <laughs> uh, and like, you know, what does this term mean? And so I've spent a good number of years just reading about this, thinking about these, these terms like liberal and conservative. Uh, what do they mean? Uh, what do they mean in the American context? What do they mean historically? Um, surprisingly or not, Americans almost universally use these terms wrongly. Uh, so, uh, liberal, uh, in its historical and classical sense is almost the opposite of what it means in contemporary, um, speech and discourse. So in our contemporary setting, right, it usually means something like, you know, left wing. Uh, yeah. so we associate being a liberal with, uh, left wing politics, um, you know, um, you know, bits, large central government, uh, identity politics, uh, emphasis on um, uh, egalitarianism, those sorts of things. Historically, it's the opposite. Okay, so yeah. historically, liberalism, right, grew out of the beginning of the Enlightenment period, the early modern period. Liberalism meant liberty, right? Uh, very simply, individual liberty, uh, and uh, had a strong emphasis on individualism, on the individual, on individual rights, rights to life, liberty, and property. And um, is, you know, uh, inspired a lot of the changes uh, that uh, occurred within a political community, certainly inspired the French Revolution, inspired the Glorious Revolution in England, and also inspired the American uh, Revolution, the War for Independence. Um, so these ideas um, grew out of an idea, uh, this idea of liberalism, being a liberal, meant being one devoted to individual liberty. Mm. And that uh, sounds like it, and the that's, opposite of the way it means today. So. <laughs> yeah, and it, and you know, for I think you know, even even with that, looking at okay, you know, or it sounds close to probably what we would call you know the libertarians, sure, uh, and, and things like that. But for us, you know, it sound that sounds good. That sounds you know sure. we should be for these individual uh, uh, goods and individual mm-hmm. rights. You know, mm-hmm. life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. You know, which includes you know the freedom of religion. You know, that's right. something that's very important. Um, uh, but it seems that this might be uh, uh, somewhat misguided. It sounds good. 
Sure. Uh, uh, but Locke may be wrong. That's right, yeah. So John Locke is probably the person who gave the most systematic expression of this set of ideas. Uh, and he really emphasizes, as you say, individual liberty, freedom of religion, toleration, uh, all of those sorts of things. And, um, and I think, you know, uh, as I said, and, um, uh, I recently, uh, finished and maybe some of the students have had the opportunity to listen to a expanded version of the worst ideas of modern philosophy. Um, there is uh, a lot to be said about liberalism that I, I, I find a certain sympathy with. That is, I find some of the aspects of liberalism to be attractive and to be uh, worthy of esteem. Uh, that said, um, there are uh, some some problems with it. And I think this comes out if you compare it to the predecessor. Right. So if you think about okay. what came before liberalism, we're so used to thinking in these terms. Right. That. That it's hard for us to imagine, but there was there was uh, a system, there was a set of ideas and a theory that came before liberalism, uh, and you can call that um, tradition, you can call it uh, uh, traditional communitarianism or communitarianism. Um, I'll go, just go with tradition because it's easier to say. Yeah. Uh, but in this view, in this view, right, um, what you really have is an emphasis on precedent, an emphasis on received authority. Uh, on uh, being guided by others, on uh, community, um, and on the common good. And probably I think the best representative of this approach uh, would be uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. I believe that his political philosophy articulates a clear alternative to liberalism. Uh, and so while I would sort of be sympathetic to some, some of the aspects of liberalism, um, uh, nevertheless, I think that, that probably uh, St. Thomas is a better guide than Jean Locke. <laughs> That's the understatement of the year. But <laughs> so, so when we when we look at uh, um, kind of these two tradition and liberalism, uh, uh, it seems that you know for liberalism, what stands at the the, the heart of that is the the individual, sure. and for tradition is uh, uh, the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the individual good versus uh, the common good. So right. how how do you know how can we maybe uh, when we look at these two, uh, the common good and the individual good because they it sounds like you know you can clarify this it sounds like these two really stand at the heart of what it is there that these political ideas are trying to protect and trying to increase. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, how would you maybe you know define these and, and maybe set the set the two. Uh, in contrast to each other. Okay, um, sure. The um, one way of, of just sort of, I think, getting into that is to think about two contrasting metaphors. Um, one of the, the metaphor for uh, tradition in terms of thinking about what is the political community was the body politic. So traditional uh, political philosophers thought of the political community as an organic body. Right. If you think about your body, right, it's a living, growing, developing thing. All the parts of the body are necessary for the life of the body or at least contribute to the life of the body. Uh, and it is unified. Right. That's the metaphor from the traditional perspective about uh, political community. The metaphor for uh, um, liberalism is a contract. Right? So you have the idea <laughs> of uh, these individuals coming together, forming a contract. Of course, this never actually happened or only rarely happens or it happens in a very extended way. I don't remember ever su- uh, signing a contract uh, with uh, President Trump that he would be my president, but whatever. The um, So the uh, uh, the metaphor for liberalism is, is individuals coming together in a contract. Uh, 
When you think about a contract, what you're trying to secure there usually, not in every case, but usually, is an individual good. So what is an individual good? An individual good is a good that um, belongs uh, properly or specifically to one and cannot be shared by many. So, um, for example, my life, like the life of this of this body that I inhabit, is an individual good, right? It's not something that can be shared with others. It is my own life, right? Mm-hmm. And similarly with your life. Uh, those are individual goods. Now, those are things that they're still goods. So let's be very clear. They are goods. They are things that are desirable. It is desirable for me to perpetuate and conserve my life. Um, common goods, on the other hand, are goods that are one in number but shared by many. And that's what St. Thomas says about it. So uh, this is a, a shared kind of good. And the, I think the clearest exa- – well, a clear basic example of this would be the victory of a sports team. So if you think about a team-oriented sport like um, – Football, and I mean American football, uh, <laughs> the, um, what, uh, you know, the common good there is the victory of the whole team. So even if you do well as an individual player, right? So, uh, you, you accumulate a lot of statistics. If you don't actually triumph as a team, then you have not achieved your common good. That is the good you share with the whole team. You start to think about it. Our lives are actually full of common goods, and those are some of the most important goods that we can pursue. Yeah. And so for for these two, uh, uh, the, or for at least for, for for liberalism to focus on this individual good, mm-hmm. it's not. It's important to say that it's that that it is still a good, sure. But that the common good is a higher good. It's a that's better right. good, you yeah. know. And I I think that's I think that's a struggle for 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 a lot of for a lot of people today. I remember a priest once telling me, you know the. The toughest decisions you're going to make are those between what is good and what is good. <laughs> you know that that it's you know the the choices mm-hmm. between good and evil are easy, but when you look right. at two different when you're looking at two different goods and you have to choose one, that's going to be more difficult. Uh, right. We should always choose the higher good. Uh, so what makes you know, or at least for for the, in this case, what makes the common good a higher or a better good? Well, uh, the the common good is is to be preferred. It's to be loved more than the individual good um, for a couple of reasons. But the, the clearest one is that the common good is a greater good. Um, so the, the common good is, is by its very nature a higher good than the individual good because it's desirable for the many. It benefits the many. It actualizes the many. So that makes it a higher kind of good than an individual good, which only actualizes or benefits the single individual. Single individual. Right. So that just makes it in the hierarchy of goods. It makes it a higher kind of good. Uh, So when I you know, when you serve your family, the common good of your family, which really consists in domestic felicity, then you are, in fact, um, pursuing a higher good than just say your individual good of maybe watching a football game or even maybe advancing your career. Right. So sometimes like we have a struggle, like, say, in family life between, you know, pursuing the common good, obviously, you know, somebody needs to make some money and, and all that sort of thing to provide for the family. But the common good, that is that shared domestic life lived with virtue is in fact the common good of the family and a better good than say the next plaque on the wall for being the best salesman in my region. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's something that the, that the church has been fairly consistent on when it talks Absolutely. about, you know, the, 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 the basic cell of human society. It's not the individual. Right. Absolutely. It's and that's one the of the family. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the fundamental differences here is 
liberalism conceptualizes the individual as the fundamental unit of society, whereas tradition doesn't think of it that way. It thinks of it as the family, the village, the region. Um, you know, the vill- you know, using the term the village sounds a little antiquated, but if you just think about it as any, um, any social group that's larger than the family, but less than the political community, right? And yeah. we've got, our lives are full of those from the companies that we work for to our parishes. Um, you know, if you're a member of, uh, uh some sort of association, whatever it may be, <clears throat> those are all, uh, villages in the sense of, you know, communities that are, uh, bigger than the family, but smaller than the political community. Our lives are full of these kinds of, uh, arrangements, these kinds of groupings, and our lives would be impoverished without them. Yeah, and I think, again, it's also one of those things where, you know, when you look at even uh, the fact that we it's in our nature to to live in a, right. a, a community, you know, for us to pursue the common good, sure, it has that benefit of building us up also as individuals. Whereas, sure. you know, when we just sometimes seek our individual good, mm-hmm. it, it really becomes, uh, uh, and it's very easy to become very self-centered. Sure, uh, as opposed to always, you know, thinking outside of yourself, of others, of the greater uh, uh, common good. Sure. Um, so, I mean, if you think about it, uh, there's there's two ways in which we can see that tradition is superior, right, or better than liberalism. And that is um, th- to, to recognize that the common good is higher than the individual good, right? So mm-hmm. uh, the you know, tradition recognizes the primacy of the common good. Uh, and in addition to that, tradition is based on a better anthropology. It's a recognition, uh, a better sense of and perspective of the human person and human nature. Now, that said, although tradition is better than liberalism, liberalism is probably better than the major early modern competitor, which was absolutism. <laughs> what is that? Go ahead absolutism, and explain it. Absolutism, right. So, uh, so it's really interesting. Uh, very often uh, I see uh, people act as if the idea of the divine right of kings – or absolute government, as if that's a medieval idea, but that's just false, right? Yeah. That's just an error, okay? It's incorrect. Um, uh, absolutism is an early modern theory, and it was the main modern rival to liberalism. Absolutism was the idea that to have a rational and efficient government, what we need to do is to have uh, an absolute unconditioned authority who can run everything efficiently. So the idea here is to create sort of a a unified hierarchy in which there is um, no um, differentiation in levels of authority, in which uh, authority and power is concentrated into one person. So there's no disagreements, right? So it's efficient. Right? <laughs> now, this is a little bit how I run things with my kids. I'm just kidding. But, anyways, uh, the, um, uh, but absolutism has that appeal, and it's an expression of the kind of rationalist side of the Enlightenment. So the, the side of the Enlightenment that is very confident in the power of reason. And most absolutists thought, you know, the problem really is we just don't have an efficient enough government. We need to have a government that can that can regulate everything according to reason, that can uh, also do that all efficiently. And so what we need is an absolute unconditioned ruler who can do all these things with efficiency. How's that sound, Jason? That, that sounds like an absolute contradiction. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the idea that we can have this big government and it be efficient. Good night. That is the biggest contradiction I've ever heard. Please don't utter those words again. So, <laughs> so in our, in our modern, let's let's bring this let's bring this uh, uh, to our to our home here. Uh, uh, when we look at American politics, you know, 
um, the, the, this idea that, uh, this idea of liberalism, you know, there is, yeah, I think, you know, somewhere in there, there's a little bit of a- absolutism in there, but I think sure. liberalism is really the one that's kind of, uh, brought itself mainly into our Amer- American politics. Sure. Um, how do, how has it kind of, uh, uh, you know, changed or where, or maybe what are some characteristics kind of of our, uh, uh, liberalism, you know, within when when they talk about their their priorities and what are sure. we going to do as a political idea? What do we want to accomplish? Sure. So, I mean, some of the things uh, I would say um, uh, uh, would include things like, you know, focusing on the individual good mm-hmm. rather than the common good. One of the characteristics of um, liberalism is that it breeds competition rather than harmony. So if you look at most traditional societies, most uh, traditional political philosophers, there's a strong emphasis on harmony, on balance, on unity, solidarity, those sorts of things. That's not the case in liberalism. In liberalism, I'm trying to get mine and you're trying to get yours. And people even talk like that sometimes, right? <laughs> and, oh, yeah. uh, and, and what that means is, you know, if we're competing over individual, if we're all pursuing individual goods, we must be in competition because individual goods cannot be shared. So that's right, 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 right? Right, right. Common goods can be shared, right? And so that doesn't necessarily place us in competition, rather it tends to unify us and create harmony if we're pursuing a good together, right? But if I'm pursuing an individual good and primarily individual goods and you're doing the same, those are goods that cannot be shared, so we must compete. Does that make oh, sense? Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah, and I think that's, you know, even when you look at the uh, uh, the, the modern day work week or even the modern sure. work day, mm-hmm. I mean, we have, with all the technological advances, you know, you would think, wow, we're, we're, we, we've become efficient at doing all of these things. We should sure. actually be working less, you know, because, you know, <laughs> right. but, but that's not the case. You know, people right. are working more and more. And, sure. you know, uh, even though we have these, you know, efficient means to, to accomplish our, sure. our jobs. Well, and, yeah. and again, that's, it's because I don't think we have that focus on, uh, the common good that it's sure. these, you know, all of these individuals, out there now. I'm not saying you know I'm against capitalism by saying this, but uh, uh, I will say this kind of uh, um, un, un, you know uh, this uh, individualistic sure. kind of uh, approach to it uh, is is not good for the family. It's not yep. good for you know even the smaller communities and as a as a political body, uh, mm-hmm. it's not good for for it as sure. well. And, and Jason, I would say you know I think that uh, I'll say this try to say this very clearly. I think that you can be critical of capitalism and not be a socialist. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, that doesn't work with my tribe. <laughs> I've spoken to my tribe and we don't accept that. Like, so, yeah. uh, uh, socialism is certainly a deep and grave error, but I think that we can recognize that, uh, and uh, that capitalism is an outgrowth of uh, liberalism, actually, and yeah. most historians recognize that there's a strong association um, between the growth of capitalism in the early modern period and um, the growth of liberalism. Now, as I say, um, you know, as with liberalism, I think there's a lot to that you can think about with, recognized within capitalism that's worthy of esteem and makes a lot of sense. But there are, I think, things that we can be critical of. That's probably a subject matter for another podcast. But uh, um, uh, nevertheless, I think you can make that distinction. You can recognize, look, there's a problem with capitalism without necessarily endorsing socialism. So, right. Um, a good way but, to think about it is there's a ditch on both sides of the road. That's right. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. right. You <laughs> can go right. off either one and they both end badly. That's right. Uh, yeah. 
So, so I think, I think what, you know, um, competition would be, you know, we tend to, uh, especially as Americans, we hear all the time about the value of competition, how great competition is. And certainly there is a role for it. Just kind of going along with what you're saying here, you know, trying to avoid extremes. Some competition is helpful. But in most of our lives, we like competition doesn't work that well. I mean, you think about, you know, like we we actually need a lot of harmony and cooperation too, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And and liberalism tends to foster an excessively uh, competitive society. To kind of bring some of this together, though, I think, you know, while you're correct, Jason, to say that liberalism is probably the most influential um, uh, ethos idea within uh, our American setting. Um, I think you could add to that, though, that absolutism still has its appeal. One of the things that I mean, nobody says I'm an absolutist, right? <laughs> but uh, um, but um, the, the ideas that are contained in it, that is the idea of an efficient um, system run by experts, right, run by a system of bureaucratic experts, that's still very appealing, not to me, but to a lot of people, right? So there is yeah. this belief that if we just have an efficient enough government with just enough experts in it, technocrats, people sometimes will say, then we can solve all of our problems, right? And, and that's a, that's a belief that's still very much with us, right? Um, that if we have a system of experts, we can solve all our problems. It's a utopian idea. Uh, it's fundamentally flawed. The catechism even speaks to it, if I remember correctly, right? Um, but, um, but it's still very appealing. And so what we end up having in, I think, our contemporary politics very often is this struggle between I want to be a free individual on the one hand or I want this system of experts to solve all my problems on the other. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> we want both at the same time. And that's impossible. Yeah. And even with. Yeah. I mean, it's it's one of those things where I think and again, this goes back to why why people should study philosophy, you know, with you know, know. Under, looking at absolutism and saying, OK, well, you know, that's just that is completely uto utopian and unrealistic. You know, sure. let's let like there there we are a flawed people mm -hmm. and, you know, to set up something like this uh, has has actually been tried several times <laughs> with. Maoism. Yeah. 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 yeah, and it and it usually ends in you know genocide and death. So you know, right. it's not just like you know it failed and we couldn't provide health care for everybody. No, it ended in like you know the direct kill, you know, systematic killing of people. Like yeah. it, it ended badly. You know, sure. and and you know, but you know, we haven't gotten there yet. But 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 one you know one characteristic that I that I find interesting about our uh, American politics is the the this kind of um, idea that we should always be changing, mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know, like the, 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 that, you know, oh, tr you know, tradition, just equals antiquity. Sure. And, you know, we're, we're in a new era. We should always be progressing, you know, even that's, right. that's kind of the new term for, you know, the progressives, you know, mm -hmm. uh, why, why do you think that that really became a, a kind of a, 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 a real mark of mm -hmm. modern day liberalism? I think because inherent in liberalism is this uh, um, competitive ethos and competitive structure that by its very nature brings about change. Uh, now, there, there's, there are probably other perspectives that you could bring in here. I think it would be interesting to incorporate as this probably is a, a broader subject uh, than what we can deal with today. But you could, uh, probably the, the rhetorical value and the cultural value of evolutionary theory Mm -hmm. um, you know, contributes to um, the way in which we think about change. But liberalism in general, you know, um, involves a kind of um, 
overthrowing of things, right? So uh, all of the original liberals recognized that liberalism is revolutionary. <laughs> uh, that's why it breeds revolutions. Uh, <laughs> and revolutions are changes. And so wherever you have liberalism, you have uh, you have a tendency to emphasize the individual and get rid of tradition, stability, etc. Because here's the thing is, if I go with tradition, if I go with authority, if I go with hierarchy, then I'm not as free to do whatever the heck I want, right? And that's really the heart of... Uh, of liberalism, right? And so it's going to always bring in revolution and change. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, one of those things where, you know, I'm not free to do what I want, you know, kind of that that idea. It's, or the way that it's kind of worked itself out is that, that that's kind of always given as a statement of, you know, mm -hmm. I really want to be, you know, uh, um, free. I want the liberty to do what I want, you know. Sure. Uh, but it's never, it's always done in divorce of, the common good or even what is good. You know, I just want to be able to do what I want, whether it's good or ill, That's know, right. Uh, right. which is, which is just, you know, absolutely crazy. Sure. Uh, and it leads to actually, you know, a, a destruction of both the common good and the individual. Absolutely. You know, that there has to be these, these, uh, uh, these standards, you know, even, you know, St. Augustine's famous line, you know, what, what, uh, uh, man, what, you know, God wrote on the tablets, what man ceased to read in his heart. Huh, that, that, sure. that we have these kind of guidelines, you know, or, or commandments even, mm -hmm. uh, that that this is this is how a society uh, uh, here are kind of the basic building blocks of, of a just society. Um, and and to, to recognize that actually when we especially when it comes to the divine law, when we when we follow the divine law, mm -hmm. even though it sounds like it's going to restrict us, it actually right. makes us more free. Sure. Yeah. Because it's because, it you know, uh, it's part of the divine law. I mean, think about how how much more free we would be if nobody stole stuff or killed people. <laughs> sure, you know, right, right, you could right. go you could you could travel. You could take the locks off your cars, your houses, right. all these things. We would actually be more free. Right. Yeah. You wouldn't have to carry <laughs> these blasted things that scratch up your phone. Right. That's so, right. so or lose. You know, right. Yeah. Or, yeah. So I mean, like when when it comes to you know this, this idea of uh, of tradition versus the the kind of the liberal idea of 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 change, and when they say change, you know, a lot of times it's it's not just change as kind of in, in in an evolution, but also but it's a change in like like you said, uh, um, a radical change sure. of yeah. of a complete getting getting rid of what was there in the past. You know, right? As, as, yeah, yeah. And one of the things uh, just to kind of piggyback on something you say that. that Traditional societies, pre-modern uh, political philosophers, uh, thought of tradition as a resource, right? That is, the tradition's not something that uh, necessarily stifles us. Tradition is something that empowers us. It, it gives us direction. It helps us out. Um, I think, you know, especially in the areas, and we don't need to get into the details necessarily, but in the areas of family and sexuality, you know, we've experienced such a revolution since the 1960s um, that, you know, People are, are just disoriented. They're confused. We see, you know, uh, terrible damage to children and the family, et cetera, because we've adopted this idea of liberalism within sex and family yeah. uh, and, and, and just thrown off tradition. So, you know, men and women don't even know how to behave anymore as men and women or as husbands or wives, as parents and children. Because we just are sort of like, well, I can just make it up however I want, right? Instead <laughs> of receiving, you know, the the wisdom of uh, of this of the ages, the wisdom of the church, uh, the tradition, 
um, that has been developed. Yeah, and this brings us back to you know our um, uh, the title for our podcast here right. to take every thought captive. That that there 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 are ideas out there that sure. subvert the human person who they are who they were made to be. It destroys families. It destroys right. entire communities. It divides countries and and in, you know in the entire world for that matter. Uh, and so as Catholics, we need to to uh, step up our intellectual game. We need to try to uh, um, uh, be formed strongly both in our in our sanctity, but also in our intellect, which feeds sure. that. Uh, and so that's why you know uh, we chose uh, this title, uh, right. and that's why that's part of our mission here at CSA is you know through this intellectual formation to transform society uh, and turn and reorient our world back to God. So that's right, and transform ourselves. Yeah, yeah. So thanks for listening to Take Every Thought Captive, the CSA podcast. Until next time, God bless. Mm-hmm.